I would encourage you to please join me in a word of prayer. Dear Lord, I feel a great sense of inadequacy, God, to to preach about you, to try to introduce your Son, Jesus Christ. And I feel insignificant and small and completely inadequate to accurately present your Son, Jesus Christ. But God, it is through the preaching of your word that you and your grace and your sovereignty have designed to communicate these truths to your people and to this world. I pray, God, that through my weakness and my ineptitude, God, that you would work through in your strength and your power that we may behold the Lamb of God. I praise your name. Amen. Well, one of the benefits of being able to preach occasionally and fill the pulpit is getting to choose what it is that I'd like to be able to present to you. Uh, it is a perk that I get to, to think about throughout the year about what I will do. And uh, this uh, opportunity was not one that was anticipated well in advance, Since, uh, but praise the Lord that Pastor Rag is able to finally get away on his vacation. Um, so it is a privilege to be able to fill in once again. And uh, oftentimes when I'm thinking about what it is that I'm going to, to preach about, what passage we're going to turn to, I'll focus on something that I've been studying or teaching about uh, in Bible study. Uh, this time, I decided to approach one of my favorite passages, uh, that we all have different passages that we go to uh, when we feel weak, when we feel lowly, when we feel tired and tested. And uh, for me, Matthew 11 is one of those passages and has been for some time. And so it is a privilege that I get to be able to dive into the passage and to study the context and prepare to bring it to, to all of you this morning. Recently, Pastor Rag has been going through a series on fighting for truth and protecting ourselves from false teaching. And now we're preparing for a series on the books of Luke and Acts. And we stand on the precipice of that. I hope that this message today will serve and, and benefit us to help introduce us to what will probably inevitably be about a decade of teaching through the books of uh, Luke and Acts, knowing uh, Terry's pace. Uh, I hope that it will be a helpful introduction and it, uh, however long it takes us to move through the books of Luke and Acts, we're going to constantly be confronted with the life and teaching of Jesus Christ. And I pray that these words will saturate our minds that they will inspire our souls and propel our hearts to love him all the more. One of the reasons it is so important for us to fight for truth as we've been speaking about and to prepare ourselves for false teaching is because it is the truth of God's word that will change lives. When truth is threatened, twisted, softened, or silenced, then lives are not changed by God's truth. Indeed, lives cannot be changed without truth 
clearly proclaimed. Instead, they are further, further grounded in a lie. Today, we live in a world and a culture where we see the consequences of a Romans 1 ideology. Man has rejected the glory of God for a lie. Our culture has refused to honor God or give thanks to Him, instead looking to supplant biblical truth at any turn in order to not be held accountable to it. Little by little, biblical truth has been surrendered to the point to where to stand on truth will now require the label of hate speech. If you dare hold to what the Bible actually says and states, then you are hateful and judgmental, and you are narrow-minded and bigoted. These are the terms in which we live. In many cultures around the world, Satan wants to eliminate any sense of biblical accountability to man. Any sense of shame over sin must be avoided and replaced with pride and celebration. Mankind thinks that by legitimizing and celebrating sin, they will find comfort and peace by participating in it. But what people don't realize is that there is no lasting pleasure. There is no lasting peace or satisfaction to be found in sin. The wells that man goes to for peace only promise bitterness and heartache. The reality is that the only source of true peace and satisfaction is found in Jesus Christ alone. The reason we fight for truth, the reason we care about exposing false teaching is because they distort the teachings of Jesus Christ and rob him of the glory that comes with life-changing, soul-saving, foundation-building, peace-bringing, and joy-abounding truth. That is why we fight for truth. This morning, we're going to look at the words of Christ in Matthew chapter 11, verses 25 to 30. And we're going to see that Christ is the true source of peace and rest. And I hope that through the passage, we'll hold more tightly to the knowledge of Christ that transforms our lives. Now, as we turn to Matthew chapter 11, just to give ourselves a little bit of context to understand what's going on. Prior to this, the disciples have just returned. If you saw the same context in in the book of Luke, uh, you see the disciples, the 72 that were sent out to the surrounding cities to proclaim the coming of the Messiah have just returned and they are marveling at what they have seen transpire. They have gone proclaiming the truth of who Christ is and that the Messiah has come and they've seen God work in amazing ways and they come back in awe of what God has accomplished And right before this, Jesus condemns the lack of repentance upon the part of those in Chorazin, Bethsaida, Tyre, and Sidon, that they have seen many mighty works. They have seen God work in amazing ways, yet they remain ignorant as to the reality of who Christ is. And they stand condemned before the Savior. Now, the second half of this passage is a very familiar one to many of us, but it is in the context that we find that it gives us strength and lasting impact. We often run to the second half of this passage for comfort and truth, but that comfort and truth is anchored in the reality of the first couple of verses. So I want to work our way through this passage starting in verse 25. And first we are going to see that Jesus is the grounds of our rest. And then second, we will see 
the invitation to that rest. So first, we're going to see the grounds of the rest. And secondly, we will see the invitation to that rest. So first, the grounds for the rest we see in verse 25 and 26. And let me read through those verses. It says, At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So here we see the grounds of our rest, that there is theology in which our rest is anchored in. One of the great truths of God's word is that before he ever calls us to do something, he explains to us the reality of what is already true. The imperatives, the commands of scripture are only made possible by the indicatives, the truths of scripture. And here we see that Jesus prays to God as his own father and addresses him, addresses him as Lord of heaven and earth, acknowledging God's sovereign rule over everything. He shows us it is God that is sovereign in salvation, not man. He says, God, you have hidden these things from the wise and the understanding and revealed them to little children. It is God who is in control of the message. It is God who is in control of salvation. Salvation is not an issue of intelligence, education, mental achievement, or self-determination. We know this to be true. It is not a production of man but a result of God's unlimited grace to those who would believe. It would not be God's gracious will. It would not be up to God's gracious will were salvation the result of man's own self-determination and intelligence. If it was up to that, God's will would have nothing to do with it. When God calls you to salvation, it is only when you are an end of yourself, when you cry for mercy, having realized that you have absolutely nothing to offer to God. Salvation comes through repentance, not through reason. When he calls them little children here, this is a way of describing us saying that we are helpless. We are completely dependent. We are dependent upon the acting of someone outside of ourselves. Jesus is not saying that the educated cannot know him. He is not discouraging education in these passages, but he's certainly saying that it is not the basis on which we come to an understanding of who God is. We see this truth lived out in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, where Paul explains to the church at Corinth. He says, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? He says in verse 26, consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God works according to his own rules. The Apostle Paul is telling us in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 that it is not the wise who inherit salvation. It is not the holders of a law who inherit salvation. It is those whom God calls. Those who understand their own weakness, their own inability before God. 
Ephesians chapter 2 clearly states it is by grace that we are saved through faith, not of our own works, not of our own doing, not of our own intelligence. So that no one may boast, so that no one can go before God and say, I figured it out. I solved the riddle that we all stand before God equally in awe of the fact that he has called us and opened our eyes to the truth of salvation, to the simplicity of the gospel. The first ground of our trust is that our salvation depends not upon ourselves, but upon God's gracious will alone. The ground of our rest here is that we rest in the gracious will of God who has called us to salvation. We don't rest in our own ability. It only is a matter of time before we understand our own weakness. We're often reminded on a daily basis. If, if our rest, if, if rest was found in our own ability, we would have no rest at all because we are reminded on a daily basis that we're weak, Right? You have the most delicious meal you've ever had. What happens three hours later? You're hungry again. You have the most restful night of sleep. What happens 12 hours later? You're tired again. That we are well acquainted with weakness. And so the first foundation of our rest is that it it is found in a gracious God. It is found in the gracious will of God who is sovereign and in control. The second ground of our rest here is found in verse 27. That all things have been handed over to the Son. That Son, Jesus Christ, has been given all authority. All things have been handed over to me, Christ says, by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. All authority has been granted to Christ. This is a clear proclamation of Christ's deity and power. It is through Christ alone that we have access to the Father. That's clear in the book of Hebrews, in the entire New Testament. That Christ is saying, you only get to God through me. When we see Christ, we do not see a mere example of moral excellence or a teacher to emulate. We see God in the flesh. It is remarkable to think as we read through the life of Christ and as we prepare our hearts to go through the book of Luke, that we are seeing God very God and man very man. We are seeing the reality of God in the flesh and what that looks like, what that sounds like. The grounds of the invitation to rest is in having a saving knowledge of God through Jesus Christ. If you want to know God, you must go through Jesus Christ. Clearly, Jesus Christ is not just proclaiming and claiming to be a good teacher here to follow. He is not claiming just to be a good moral example to emulate. He is saying, if you want God, you must go through me. If we are to ascribe this amount of power to any other person in the history of mankind, it would be a terrifying thing. When Christ says that all authority has been granted to me, all authority has been given to me. Imagine a person on the face of the earth that God has given all authority to 
anyone other than Christ, that would be a terrifying situation. Here we have Jesus declaring his sovereign power and authority to his disciples. And what he says next is remarkable. That is why the the second half of this, where we're going to be spending our time, is remarkable. Because here Christ says, I have the power. I have the authority. It has been granted to me by God. I have the authority to do whatever it is that I want. I could command down legions to accomplish my will. When you think about Christ being tempted by Satan, and Satan is offering him everything, it was already his. (laughs) And Christ could do whatever he wanted with it. And when As we see in mankind, absolute power corrupts absolutely. Anytime man is given absolute power in any type of situation, the corruption of his own heart is made clearly evident. Anytime humanity, apart from God, is given any authority, it is corrupted. What happens when Jesus Christ says, I have been granted all authority. All things have been given to me and handed over to me. Access to God comes through me. What is the, what is the command that Christ then bears upon our hearts? A call to rest. When Christ recounts the fact that he has been given all authority and all power, what does he do with that? He says, come here. You're tired. You're weak. You're frustrated. I understand. I'm God, very God, and I'm man, very man. I'm well acquainted with your sufferings. And when Christ recounts the fact that he has all authority on earth, What does he do with that authority? He invites the weakness of man to come to him and find rest. He does not abuse that authority, but he says, come, come to me. All who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So we see the call to our rest here in the rest of the passage. We're going to see three aspects of this rest. First, we see the invited. Then we will see the promise. And then we will see the task. The invited, the promise, and the task. The first one, the invited. Who who is Christ calling? Who is it after establishing his authority that Christ chooses to focus upon? He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. Now, the immediate context here of what Christ is dealing with are those who are depending upon the law for their own salvation, enslaved to the teachings of the Pharisees. 
This is not unique to the people of this time. The Pharisees did not have a unique way of approaching religion. The way that the Pharisees approached religion is the way that humanity approaches religion without Jesus Christ. The way that the Pharisees approached religion was to make it dependent upon their own efforts. The temptation is to rely on good behavior to merit the approval of a greater authority. This is tightly bound in humanity. Every false religion is established upon the thought that man can earn their way, earn some type of favor, earn some type of merit before a sovereign God. That's the foundation of all false teaching. And this was the modus operandi of the Pharisees. It was their typical behavior. In fact, you look to Matthew chapter 23, verse 4. Think of this verse in light of this context. Matthew 23, verse 4 says, They tie up heavy burdens, speaking of the Pharisees, they tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. The Pharisees created a system of people who labored and were heavy laden. The result of the false teaching of the Pharisees was to create an entire class of people who were heavy, who were bearing loads that they could not remove on their own. Instead, they set up a system and said, yes, you're heavy laden, come to me, the Pharisees said, and I will ease you. I will give you a yoke. The Pharisees of Jesus' time were not the first to revert to relying on their own achievements to make themselves right before God. And the system has certainly continued into our own day. Even if we have been saved by grace, oftentimes for even the redeemed, there is a temptation for us to fall into a mindset where we say, I must be being punished because I've sinned. Or if I do this, then God will work things out for me. If, if I am holy enough, if I am obedient, if I spend my time in the word of God this morning, then things will go well with me. It's a mindset that we all have <clears throat> the temptation to fall into on a regular basis. Because it is the flesh that tempts us to that direction. It is our flesh that tempts us to think, yeah, the power of change lies within you. That's what our flesh wants us to think. Sin at his very core is insisting to live contrary to how God calls us to live. Seeking to find pleasure and satisfaction in anything outside of God is a fool's errand and only leads to frustration, exhaustion, and destruction. We must battle to preach the gospel to ourselves day in and day out to remind ourselves what the source of our justification before God is. Following the course of this world leads to exhaustion. It provides no relief, no respite, no peace, and no rest. We are surrounded by a population that is looking in all of the wrong places for rest and relief. We are surrounded by a society and a culture that is tired and heavy laden. They're just looking in all the wrong places for the solution. 
Christ understands that we labor. Christ understands that we are tired and that we are heavy laden for one reason or another. Christ is familiar with our weakness. He was tempted in every way in which we are yet without sin. And so he gives us the promise. The promise is, I will give you rest. I will give you rest. The rest that Christ offers is in knowing God and knowing him. It sounds so simple and profound. People try to say that Christ brings wealth and happiness when those things never satisfy to bring any amount of peace and rest. There are charlatans who populate pulpits around the world who declare that if you follow Christ, he will give you the desires of your heart. Not understanding that our hearts are desperately wicked. Even people in Christ's name say, if you follow Christ, you'll have wealth. You'll have riches. You'll have comfort and health. When none of that is what we need. What we need is rest. We need an eternal, God-given rest. In Christ, when we are freed from our sin, we are freed from the burden of being good enough to earn God's approval. In Christ, we are freed from the burden to search for truth. In Christ, we are freed from the burden of having to find purpose and pleasure in this world system. In Christ, we are freed from the burden of facing the fear of an uncertain future. In Christ, we are freed from the burden of losing our salvation. In Christ, we are freed from the burden of suffering for no purpose. In Christ, we are freed from the burden of living lives with no purpose. Because all of those things are found in Christ. That is rest. That is the rest that Christ offers to us. And that is the rest that this world is bankrupt of. You will not find it outside those doors and you will only find it in Christ and Christ alone. This rest in a salvific, salvific sense is when we are at peace and secure in our salvation. Having been freed from the anxiety and the uncertainty of life, we live at peace before God. When we submit to God's will for our lives, we don't suffer the secondhand consequences of sin and the constant tension that sinful choices create in our life. Isaiah 26.3 says, You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. When we trust in God, we find the peace that our hearts need. When Christ is praying, John 14, 27, he says, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives, do I give it to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Christ is saying, trust me. I will give you the rest that you need. 
when I think about when I think about this thought, I one thing I think about in in man's terms is back when I was in seminary, uh, I experienced anxiety for the first time in my life. And I remember laying in bed at night and finding it difficult to breathe, thinking about the approaching end of the semester and thinking that I was drowning in my Hebrew class. I was losing ground in my Greek class and I was not contemplating what Professor Thomas was explaining to me. And I was thinking about everything that I had to do between that point of the semester and the end of the year. And I started to experience this new feeling in my heart, this tension that I had never felt before. And I'm like, what is this? What's going on inside of me right now? And I remember I went to one of my professors, Dr. Farnell, who was a very unique person in and of himself. Uh, and he, uh, he was my professor of Greek at the time. And we took a class over a course, um, over the course of, I think it was four weeks. I think it was, um, four or six weeks. It was an entire year of Greek smushed down and he called it gladiator Greek. Uh, and he had a he had a cardboard cutout of Russell Crowe as the gladiator, and uh, and he would welcome us and say to those who are about to die, I salute you, and <laughs> and he really committed to to the illustration. And I went to him and said, I feel I'm about to die. <laughs> I feel I'm about to die. And whenever there was a student who felt that they were drowning. Whenever there was a student who felt that life was becoming too much for them, he would say, he put his hands together and he would say, trust me, just trust me. I want you to do well and I want you to graduate. So trust me. When I think of Christ saying, come to me all who, who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. I imagine Christ reaching out his hands and saying, trust me, you are in my hands. Nothing can happen to you that I will not graciously allow. I will give you rest. I will ease you of your burden. And Christ is saying, trust me. The interesting thing here is when Christ calls us to say that all who are labor and heavy laden to give you rest, he says, take my yoke upon you. He gives us a task. He doesn't free us from burden. That's what we feel we need. Oftentimes we feel, I am burdened right now. I feel that the world is, is collapsing in around me. The walls are caving in. 
And Christ is saying, come to me, trust me, and take my yoke upon you. He tells us to work. This is a call to work, which on its face might seem odd because you're like, well, I just told you I'm really tired. Why are you telling me that it's time to get to work? I'm exhausted. Now the yoke being good New Hampshireites, you should all be familiar. If I were preaching this passage in California, you might have to go into greater detail as to what a yoke looks like. I would encourage you to go to the Deerfield Fair this fall and, uh, and watch some oxen pull and use the yoke effectively. The yoke was a tool to guide livestock. It would be set around their necks. It would bear upon their shoulders. And it was made to even the load to help them to pull it evenly. It would evenly distribute the weight and of whatever was being pulled among the two of them. Now, it's interesting, knowing that Christ was a carpenter, he probably would have been very familiar with a yoke, probably had to construct many yoke in his lifetime to, to supply for the farmers in, in the Jezreel Valley. He says, this yoke is a metaphor was often used in the Old Testament of, of Israel falling in bondage to Babylon, that they served them under a yoke. Certainly that yoke was not a pleasant one to bear. And interestingly enough, in the Mishnah, written about 100 years before Christ, the Pharisees wrote, He that taketh upon himself the yoke of the law, from him shall be taken away the yoke of worldly care. That is the teaching that was on display at the time of Christ. These Pharisees were saying, take the yoke of the law upon you and be freed from worldly care. And Christ is saying, take my yoke upon you. Don't bear the burden of the yoke of the law. Take my yoke upon you. Interestingly, Christ is not abolishing the yoke. He is instead inviting them to take his own yoke upon them. He says, take my yoke upon you, learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. He says at the very end of the verse, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The yoke fits easily. A master craftsman will design the yoke to fit the animal that it weighs upon. Christ being the master craftsman will place a yoke upon your shoulders that is perfectly designed for you. It will not be heavy. It will not be burdensome. It will not weigh you down. It will not frustrate you. It will be light and it will be easy. This is work that is exciting, enthusiastically carried out because it is obedience for the sake of the glory of Christ. One commentator said his yoke is gentle, but not in the sense that it is less demanding than Judaism and the law. In some ways it is more demanding, but this is a yoke of love, not of duty. It is the response of the liberated, 
not the duty of the obligated. When Christ says, take my yoke upon you, he is inviting you to a life to live for his glory, not out of obligation, but because you are enraptured with Christ, because you are in love with your Savior, out of a desire to bring him glory, out of a desire for the joy that is set before you, right? That's what Christ did. The joy that was set before him led him to the cross. Christ is calling them to throw off the yoke of the law and to put on the yoke of submission to Christ. And then he says in the middle there, he says, learn from me. He says, learn from me. I found this to be fascinating. The call to submit to Christ's yoke is a call to learn from him. The same root word here in the Greek is the same word that we get the word disciple from. That this is the process of becoming a disciple, a follower of Christ. It is the process of learning about who your Savior is. A big part of the process of trusting Christ is knowing Christ and gaining a knowledge of Christ. Every one of us are going to be confronted with situations and times in our lives when we will need a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And if you do not have that saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, you will drown. And as a believer, you will still be faced with trials in life, with darkness, times of difficulty, where the, the truth about Christ that you have stored up in your heart will, what, will help you sail through those times of uncertainty. Unfortunately, there are too many, as Paul says, who are still living on milk, who are still supplementing their diet with Similac rather than the meat of God's word and understanding the truth of who God is. And when those trials come, when the rains pour down, you lack a knowledge of God, a lack of a knowledge of your Savior Jesus Christ on which to stand firmly upon. I was listening to a pastor being interviewed, and he was talking about counseling at the end of a person's life. Counseling in hospice. He said, there are two types of conversations that I have in hospice. One is theonomy of justifying the ways of God to man. One conversation I have with people is trying to get them to understand that God is sovereign and trying to outline to this person who is faced with what is probably an end of life situation I'm trying to explain to them the truth of God's word and how God is still just and right and worthy of glory in this situation. He said that is the worst place to have that conversation. The conversation this pastor said I would rather be having is rejoicing in the mutual knowledge of their Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. 
Because that conversation of of who God is has already been had before that difficult situation arose. Because I'll have that conversation with people who are in the hospital, but I would much rather have a conversation of rejoicing at someone who is preparing to meet their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and can't wait for that first glimpse of heaven. We must learn from Christ in order to walk the paths that he has set before us. And like I said, it is only a matter of time before we face those situations in and of ourselves. And it is best to learn a knowledge of who God is prior to that than in the midst of it. It is so important for us to be involved in the process of discipleship on a continual basis. You are slowly, slowly building up a high view of God. Every day you are building up a view of God that will make it higher and higher and higher so that you are better able to trust God in those dark days. And Christ just doesn't say, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. He just doesn't command these things without telling them why they should. Why should we go to Christ with these things? Why should we run to Christ? That's for I am gentle and lowly in heart. Our Savior, who has been given all authority, says, I am gentle. I am lowly in heart. I want you to come to me with your anxiety. I want you to come to me with your worry, your care, your concern, your frustration. Because I am gentle. Imagine the creator of the universe, the sustainer of the universe, lowering himself to the level to care about a peon like me. Why does God care about my suffering? In Matthew 21, when Christ is on the road, the day where he is entering into Jerusalem, people are celebrating the coming Messiah, but he knows he is marching to his eventual death. He says, your king is coming to you. He is humble and mounted on a donkey. That's our savior. He is humble and mounted on a donkey and he was marching his way to the cross on our behalf. When we know who this Christ is, that gives us the grounds to trust him with our lives and with our eternity. We are to use each day as an opportunity to learn from Christ. Every day God gives you the opportunity to grow and come to a deeper understanding of who God is, of who Christ is. And that, that will educate how you respond in life and how you worship him in, in your life in seasons of difficulty. That's why a knowledge of God and Jesus Christ is so important. If you don't know who it is that you are trusting, 
you won't know why it is. You should trust him in the first place. We know that seasons of trials and difficulties are inescapable. The issue is never an if, but it is a when. It is so crucially important for us to find ourselves in truth and build ourselves up in the knowledge of God and Jesus Christ so that this muscle of faith is built up to find peace in God in seasons of trial. And he says, I will give you rest for your soul. Outside of Christ, there is no rest for your soul. You can look to everything that this world has to offer you. You could exhaust every experience. You could explore every temptation and sin. But it will only lead to frustration, exhaustion, and destruction. You will never find rest for your soul outside of Jesus Christ. Now, as we prepare to launch ourselves into a study of the life of Christ through the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, we would benefit by using this time, these upcoming years, to pursue a knowledge of Christ. Every Sunday we gather together, we are going to be confronted with the truth of who Christ is. Every Sunday we are going to have a sovereign appointment to learn about our Savior. It is through this knowledge of Christ that we will have true peace, true victory, and true rest. I'd like to close with an illustration this morning. This illustration is one that probably many of you have heard me share, um, either in Bible study or other situations or scenarios. Uh, And this is an illustration that I read in a book years ago. Uh, and it is found from the, from the Iliad and the Odyssey. Uh, and certainly not scriptural. Don't get me saying that. Uh, but I find this to be one of the most impactful illustrations for why it is important to pursue a knowledge of Christ. Now, in the Iliad and Odyssey... There's a story of Ulysses or Odysseus, and Odysseus is is returning from saving Helen of Troy. You're probably familiar with the Trojan horse that they led in, and they saved Helen, who had uh, the beauty to to launch a thousand ships. And on his way back, the journey back takes him 10 years to get back, and he has a wife and children that he desperately misses. His wife's name is Penelope, and he deeply, deeply misses her her companionship and longs to see her face. And their ship passes about some islands that are inhabited by these fearsome creatures called the sirens. These sirens, because there are children involved, I will not describe in the story exactly what they do to their prey, their victims, but it is not a pleasant end to their life. These sirens call out with irresistible songs to encourage the ships to come closer 
These ships going through these foggy shores, these islands, can't see what is around them, but they hear these glorious songs being sung. And, and their hearts are found being tempted and drawn closer and closer to the source of these beautiful songs. And the sirens would sing louder and more and more beautifully until the ships would get too close and crash upon their rocky shores. At that point, the sirens would be revealed to be the deadly beasts that they are and would devour their victims. Well, Odysseus was familiar with the sirens. He had heard of their story, of their reputation. He knew the dangers that lied ahead for him and his ship and his crew, and he ordered every member of his crew to fill up their ears with wax so that they would not be able to hear the call of the sirens. Except he did not fill his own ears with wax. Instead, he instructed his men to tie him to the mast of the ship with the strongest rope so that he had no option but to remain. And he said, whatever I do, whatever I say, you must continue to row and ignore everything that I say. So the ship passes through these islands and he hears the sound of the sirens. And it is the most beautiful thing that he's ever heard. But his men cannot hear the call because of the wax in their ears. And one, the sirens start to get more and more aggressive. And one of the sirens takes the form of Penelope, his wife, who he has not seen in years. And he cries out. He demands and pleads with his men, let me go. Let me go to her. But he was bound by the ropes and his men did not listen And eventually the ship passed on through the islands of the sirens unscathed and no worse for the wear. Were it not for the ropes that bound him to the mast, Odysseus would have succumbed and died to the sirens. Although his soul said yes to the temptation, the ropes prevented him from from it. This is the religiosity of the Pharisees and the yoke of the law that they offered. The yoke of the law binds you to the mast of the ship and attempts to restrain your flesh from sin. But it is burdensome and it is wearying. It is restraining. It does nothing to keep you from wanting to sin. So did Odysseus have victory? In a way, he physically restrained himself, so he did not have the ability to give in to the temptation. Well, years go by, and another young man named Jason also finds himself on a ship going through the same scenario. But he came well prepared. Amongst his crew, he brought a man named Orpheus. 
Orpheus was a, mu- a musician of incomparable talent, particularly with the lyre and the flute. As they prepared to sail through the foggy islands of the Sirens, Jason called his entire crew to gather around Orpheus. And he instructed Orpheus to play the most beautiful song that he knew. They gathered around Orpheus and his flute. And they listened to him play. They were enraptured by the beauty of the song that Orpheus played for them. When Orpheus was done playing, they looked up and the sirens were gone. The islands were behind them and they had survived. Now both Jason and Odysseus survived the trek through the sirens, right? They both survived. They both made it through unscathed. But one of them left scarred, knowing that they would have given in were they given the opportunity. The key to Jason's victory was finding something more beautiful, more enchanting to focus their affections upon. This is the yoke of Christ. It is light and easy. It brings us peace and rest. Let us use these upcoming years and invest our hearts and minds into fixing our eyes upon Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Let us find something more beautiful, more enrapturing and more enchanting in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And then this world will look fraudulent. It will offer nothing to you because you have found true satisfaction in Jesus Christ alone. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we find ourselves on the precipice of spending years studying who you are, coming to a better understanding of your son, Jesus Christ, and what he has done on our behalf, the life that he lived. God, I pray if there is anyone here today that has not come to you to trust in you alone for salvation, for freedom from the burden of sin, I pray, God, that they would cast themselves in repentance and lowliness before you coming to an end of themselves and a realization that true salvation and hope and peace and rest is found in you and you alone. And I pray for every one of us, God, that continually find ourselves tempted, so easily led astray by the temptations of this world that we would use these upcoming months and years in the book of Luke to become more enraptured, to become more 
enchanted with the knowledge of Jesus Christ so that we can take his yoke upon us and learn from him. Praise your name. Amen.